0: bio design we really focus on understanding and characterizing a need and all of the elements that you need to solve it digital health reflected to me kind of the opposite meaning i have a phone i have you know bluetooth i have these capabilities what can i do with them what health problem is best solved with them
1: this is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people in passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: The company iRhythm stands as a rare example of a digital health company with an actual business model behind it. Today, we'll speak to the cardiologist and serial entrepreneur who started the company in his apartment and learn what makes him and us tick.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunin,
2: And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genomic and other health data. So Lisa, one of the aspects of today's guest, of the many features that makes him so interesting, is um, when um, I was talking with him recently about entrepreneurship, he placed a remarkable emphasis on the environment, the idea that one of the best ways to bias yourself towards entrepreneurial success is by placing yourself in the most fertile environment possible. So, you know, there are many instances where he sort of managed his career by trying to do just this, the sort of entrepreneur's version of the prepared mind that Pasteur talks about. What are your thoughts here? Is this thing that entrepreneurs should be thinking of to be sort of deliberately placing themselves in some environments versus others to sort of maximize their chance for success or, can you sort of be overly planful?
1: I don't know. It's such an interesting question. I think about Steve Case, and he's going around the country right now, finding, you know, entrepreneurs and all sorts of nooks and crannies, you know, and emphasizing... Yeah, he just
2: hired J.D. Vance, by the way. Yeah, Did you I know. see that? We're, That's cool.
1: guy. It's amazing. You know, and, you know, his his point of view is the almost the exact opposite, that there's entrepreneurship everywhere you go. And, you know, I teach a class over at Berkeley in the business school, and sometimes over at Stanford as well. And sometimes... It, I find it interesting that everybody wants to be an entrepreneur when I teach those classes. And I yeah, wonder, when you, should, yeah, but except you're they? teaching a
2: class called entrepreneurship, so. Well, I, but,
1: no, I mean, it's actually called Healthcare Venture Capital, but but most of the people in the class want to be entrepreneurs. And I sometimes wonder, like, do we really need all of those entrepreneurs? Does everybody have to be an entrepreneur? You know, I, I, um, I don't know.
2: All right. Well, we will figure out from Uday what made him pursue this strategy and uh, try to figure out how helpful it was.
1: Well, maybe we should start by asking him, what do you think? You, what do you Uday? think, Uday? Hi,
0: David. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for uh, having me on. Nice to have you. I think, as we've talked about in the past, David, I think it's not that, you know, everyone can or should be an entrepreneur at a given point in time. But if you have that kind of innovation bug in you, you've always wanted to start something. I think the way I've proceeded a lot with my career is uh, knowing that it's a hard road no matter what how can I increase the probability of potentially being in the right place at the right time so that when opportunity knocks, uh, I'm more likely to be the person to take advantage of that than someone else. So, you know, for instance, um, I'm a New Englander uh, originally, um, but when I was in training and I kind of realized that a lot of healthcare and med tech uh, entrepreneurship and innovation happens here in the Bay Area, it seemed that, you know, one of the things that might help me would be to put myself in that environment to perhaps be in a milieu that's not to say that in and around New England or Boston is not great either, but for some of the one things I wanted to do, particularly, like I said, medical devices, a lot had come out of the companies that came out of the, in and around the Stanford area and the Silicon Valley area. And so that was one deliberate choice I made to be here. Again, whether it panned out or not, it's not saying that entrepreneurship can't happen elsewhere, but will it increase my probability a little bit? And similarly, kind of where I... Then, you know, when I went down to Stanford to be in the biodesign program, which teaches medical device innovation, again, a conscious choice to be in an environment where there's a lot of other like-minded people so that even though it's still hard, it may be now a little less hard in case I have an idea or, you know, I, I want to pursue something. So I think it's not that entrepreneurship can't happen everywhere. It's just that you can have a little bit more control as an individual if you you know, are smart about it, potentially.
2: Right. I mean, and clearly, even in Boston, I mean, Bob Langer seemed to have done okay for himself as well. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Um, so um, let's take a step back. I knew that you uh, grew up the son of uh, two physicians, a cardiologist and an internist. I um, mm-hmm. uh, studied biochemistry at Harvard, which uh, I hear is the true path to greatness, um, <laughs> and then uh, st- stayed right. for medical school, uh, sadly taking the touchy-feely new pathway route versus the um, yes. uh, more ambitious tech-oriented HST program, a decision that has clearly impaired your career development. <laughs> well, is just feeling, re- just giving me a look here. But um, what did you think you were going to be when you came to medical school, and, and when did you become interested in medical devices?
0: Yeah. So, good question. So, kind of, uh, as you said, the path, the greatness of being a biochemistry major at Harvard. You know, I did a lot of research in molecular biology, really thinking that I would pursue an MD/PhD. But I think one thing I learned from having done a lot of research and writing a thesis in my undergrad was that while it was really fascinating, uh, it was hard for me to understand how a lot of the basics science that we're working on would translate directly to patients, not to say that it wouldn't, but it seemed like it is a relatively long path to get there. A lot of excitement and making new discoveries and stuff, but at least for me, it was more like, how am I going to translate this? And so I think as I went to medical school, this kind of was in the back of my mind and decided not to do or pursue potentially doing a PhD. And as I got into med school life and being exposed, even though I grew up a son of physicians really got, grew up, got into med school and started to see the various types of innovations and technologies that are part and parcel of delivering care. Um, and that was very fascinating. Like, okay, well, we've seen basic science from my undergrad. Now I'm seeing a lot of these applied approaches that are much more engineering-oriented uh, and seem to be more... Um, able to impact the patient much sooner. So I started thinking about other areas like ophthalmology, cardiology, you know, again, when you probably grow up, you don't think I'm never going to do what my dad does. But interestingly, you know, wow, cardiology is really interesting, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, and so I think somewhere in medical school, I started thinking about devices and device development as, a, as a, a way to get to the same thing that attracted me to basic science in undergrad about how to make an impact beyond being a physician and the obviously important impact physician to make every day, but in a different way. So that's kind of how I got interested in that in med school.
1: It's funny, having worked with lots of different types of doctors, but more from the investing and side. <laughs> um, full disclosure, I did not go to Harvard. I am not a doctor, and also I do not nope. have a PhD. Out! Out! <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it seems to me like cardiologists are sort of the ultimate gadget guys. You know, they love technology. They love new stuff. You know, if they could figure out, totally. you know, how to take a Pen and jam it into a patient to do something useful. They would, you know, and uh, you know, and maybe maybe outstripped only by orthopedic surgeons who also love stuff. Well, hammers and carpentry saws, type stuff. Yeah. Um, so, is that? Do you think why you ended up in, in cardiology because you like gadgets? Did you like gadgets? when you were a kid? Were you like a Lego guy? I mean, how did that all work? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I think that's. I think there's some truth to what you just said, Lisa. I think the sense that you know kids who play with Legos like I did. I loved Legos and other and building things and building cities, et cetera. I think it attracts people to cardiology because as you said, there's a lot of gadget. I think the other thing about cardiology, unlike potentially other fields, it, it makes sense. For instance, there's a lot of it's the heart is essentially physics, electricity, you know, uh, there's plumbing, <laughs> there's right. conduction, right. Uh, there's a action, you know, there's a pump. So a lot of it actually you know unlike potentially other things and other aspects of medicine you know endocrinology or rheumatology which have a lot more uh, probably understanding of science this is much more at the macro level a pump, a pump <laughs> blood and blood goes to that place over there you know it's very much more understandable if you will and then when you think about how do i keep open a collapsing artery well we'll scaffold it with a stent makes a lot of sense.
2: That's so interesting, the, the idea of it being a macro and, and sort of these, you know, um, almost like mini machines that you can really see. I mean, I actually remember in HST, we actually learned, you know, these sort of models of the cardiovascular system that were sort of very heavy on that kind of theory uh, and that kind of approach. Um, I want to sort of get to what you did next, you know, which, you know, your, your, your startup and your… Um, or your initial startup experiences and your your internal medicine, but I want to spend a minute on your decision to leave Boston because I, yeah. I think there's a so much that may not be fully appreciated about how different environments can support or, or not always support so well entrepreneurship. And you were sort of saying that, you know, clearly, I mean, there are a lot of companies who've, who are in Boston, but that at least at the time, and, and maybe things have changed, Boston wasn't as friendly to the type of entrepreneurship you were thinking about or to medical devices as places like California. Um, could you help us understand what you meant by that? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, so I think, so I was in Boston from '90 90 to 1998. Uh, as a student college and med school, and I think what was very clear is that, and I think it's changed, but it's still true, is that the Boston academic environment is probably reasonably more hierarchical than perhaps other places. I mean, if you think about California in general, kind of the Wild West and a lot of the origins of the Silicon Valley semiconductor uh, landscape with Fairchild and, you know, Intel and a lot of the kind of reinventing yourself every couple years, um, it's very different than I think uh, in, an, in a kind of a traditional place, which is hundreds of years old, where...
2: Yeah, who on the Mayflower were you related to, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So I think, you know, in the late 90s, while I think there's clearly support for huge amounts of support for basic science, I think when I kind of expressed my interest in doing device development, um, a lot of people in the, who were obviously very supportive of what I want to do, but still were like, hmm, you seem like a smart guy, why would you What is device development? Shouldn't you just perhaps maybe do research instead? It wasn't necessarily a kind of um, lack of support, but maybe a lack of understanding of what this career pathway meant because very few people actually pursued it. If anything, this was the time when, you know, uh, I had a lot of classmates kind of go to McKinsey and consulting, and that was actually more understandable, ironically, than device development. It was kind of a very different kind of pathway. And so it was kind of one of those things where, Again, back to the original question of how do you put yourself in a position where there are more perhaps like-minded people and opportunities along those lines, and it seemed that eventually getting to California would be the thing to do.
2: Wow! So, so um, it turns out that your training here was just getting started. You wound up um uh, doing internal medicine at Columbia, yeah, uh, some cardiology and electrophysiology at UCSF, and in this biodesign. What you told me was that your decision to sort of go this route after you finished um. Uh, med school was that you said you wanted to be a doctor, not just an MD. Can you explain that distinction?
0: Yeah. So, you know, after medical school is kind of like, just like I had an undergrad when I spent a few years doing research to understand really interesting, but probably not my career path. Um, As I got interested in devices in medical school, it was also one of those things that this sounds really interesting, but I really haven't done it. And so I actually took a year off after med school to help a company that was just getting started with some uh, folks I knew in Boston. We were doing 3D modeling, um, rapid prototyping, 3D printing type approaches for uh, MRI and CAT scans to make real models for planning of complex surgeries. Now, this is, you know, 1998. It's a long time ago than not the 3D printing you know now, but it was an experience that gave me a good understanding of how do you introduce technologies into the uh, medical arena? What are the challenges? You know, how do you think about markets? But more importantly to me, it also made me understand that at this point in my career, um, I'm a guy who's gone to medical school. I'm not really a physician, so I don't really have the full knowledge of, and I you know, I always thought I would be a physician and practice medicine, so it wasn't different. But I think I also now have the added impetus of realizing that, at least for me, to be able to really understand medical problems, you really have to have been there and understand both the, the, the clinical situation, but also the human impact of what you do in terms of what patients, what you're gonna tell patients, what their expectations are, because being healthy or being sick, being sick is not rational, no one wants to be sick. And so how do you think about all those things? So that made me realize that, you know, to be probably a good entrepreneur in the healthcare space, for me, as someone who's thinking about problems or seeing problems, I needed to really become trained. Uh, And and I always thought I would practice long-term, so it wasn't different, but I thought this would also be an important piece for my own ability to innovate well.
1: So I'm curious, Uday, about, you know, about your biodesign and device experience, because one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the folks who are doctors who go and engineers yep. who build medical devices, particularly you know, ten years ago or more, um, learned about medicine, learned about devices, but didn't learn about the health system? You know how things get paid, how things get reimbursed, and it's created a whole sort of spawn of folks who created device companies that really could not get there. Um, you yes. know, so. What about you? How did, how did you learn about the health question. system? Or have you learned about the health system? Or what have you learned that has informed your work?
2: Can we break that into two questions, Lisa? Can we ask you first if that was part of your training? Yep. And then subsequently, yep. can we get back to that in the context of eye rhythm? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So actually, it was uh, partly accidental and partly purposeful. So, partly As I went from college to medical school, and I was thinking about aspects of medicine not in basic science, I actually... Took some classes while a medical student that were more in the healthcare administration, healthcare business, but I actually, and I did my first summer uh, between first and second year doing some work in more on the business side at mass general with uh, in kind of the group that you know that Peter Slaven now oversees it was just to get the issue of the healthcare administration oh my
2: God you were so planful I think I was like running westerns or something yeah. <laughs> you, you were <laughs> much was, smarter
0: was yeah.
1: scooping ice cream at Pascara yes
0: it was kind of like I, had, I mean this was very early on the goal was not to think about devices but it was more like hmm the business the dev- you know and technology and then healthcare administration so exploring different things. But I think some of those experiences early on in medical school on the administrative and slash business side uh, made me realize that hmm, there's this other aspect to how technologies get promulgated that if you ask a physician, how did that catheter get in your hands, no one would actually really know. And so that was something that I guess stuck with me. And so when I kind of went into um, – and then even the research I did during residency and, and um, and fellowship, which a lot on the clinical device side, like biventricular pacers and all that, the clinical level, but they were expensive. So a lot of questions came up about cost and like, you know, quality of life you're saved and how much would people pay for, because these are expensive devices. So throughout my training for sometimes purposeful reasons, and sometimes incidental reasons, mm-hmm. I was hitting against things which had to do with cost effectiveness of and value that in a way that I probably in retrospect now said, well, that probably did impact how I look at things, um, but at that time wasn't purposeful. The other parts were purposeful, as I mentioned, you know, working on devices and all that, but these other things were just forays into explore exploration that you know, fortuitously, were very helpful when we get to, when when I got to them,
2: So maybe it wasn't part of your education, but you were really astute.
0: No, no, no. There was no this. There was actually there were actually only a few of us who were interested in the healthcare administrative side, and there were kind of outside elective classes we took during our first and second year. Um, yeah. And there was, you know, so it was still relatively new. Now there's MD MBA programs and all that. It's kind of more ingrained, but probably not to the extent it still needs to be. So Lisa, you're right. I think a lot of companies that came out in the late 90s and 2000s probably hadn't spent enough time on how do I get paid for what I do by showing both clinical and economic value.
2: So let's come back to this right now in the context of iRhythm, um, your first company. So Mm -hmm. without disclosing any personal health information, um, let's stipulate that both Lisa and I happen to be really, 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 really big personal fans of your product, rhythm. <laughs> I've actually uh, written about uh, it. Just, 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 yeah, she wrote about it. Let's, let's just put it out there. Um, so um, yeah. can you describe what it actually is? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a, a little bit about the origin of the company, but then what were the biggest hurdles specifically in terms of the, because uh, it's such a good idea, it's one of those things that when someone mentions it, has a quality of being self-evident once someone mentions it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and, yeah, and, let
0: me give a – I mean, I'll step yeah. back a little bit just to get how I got there. So, as as you kind of mentioned, you know, uh, I'd gone through residency at Columbia. I kind of went there because I had a lot of upfront training so I could short track to, again, get the UCS7 cardiology and EP. That's when this program, Biodesign, was just getting off the ground. And, again, the focus was how do you bring – multiple stakeholders, business people, engineering, medical people together to look at a unmet, an area of medicine. So after I finished my EP training, I went to this program and we focused on electrophysiology, which was my core specialty. This is the, you know, the specialty that deals with arrhythmias and you know, implanting defibrillators and getting rid of rhythms with ablation techniques.
2: Sounds important.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's one of the few where you can actually cure people of certain things. Um, so it's a very satisfying, interesting field, but highly technologically driven. When I was at the Biodesign program focusing on this area, this idea of how does a person even get to me? I'm the super, super specialist. At some point, someone must have told them, you have an abnormal heart rhythm, that's why you're seeing me. So kind of that problem is a big problem because a lot of people have symptoms that could be due to an abnormal heart rhythm, like you have your heart palpitates, you might be short of breath, you might pass out you know, God forbid the worst case is you die suddenly or have a cardiac arrest and hopefully you're resuscitated. But a lot of these things are very, very common, but the systems we have in place to monitor people are kind of things which look like Walkman connected to electrodes on your chest that you wear for anywhere from a couple days to a couple
1: weeks, There's a whole issue of. We're not designed for women to be comfortable, let's just say. No, no,
2: I mean, it's funny. No, and and, I mean, I remember from my training, I mean, when you put people on on, halter monitoring, it's not subtle. I mean, they're like walking around. No, no.
0: Uh, Yes, that's right. Everybody knows you're wearing one, et cetera. So, this idea of there's got to be a better way to monitor people to diagnose them if they're suspected of having arrhythmia. And the challenge also, what we see, and this is, again, gets back to your question, Lisa, about like building or thinking about cost and economics is we. I spent a lot of time and we as a team spent a lot really understanding where do patients go, not just dollars and devices, but really where do patients go. They oftentimes enter the healthcare system at the primary care level or the emergency level, but those people are not cardiac specialists. So what often happens is and arrhythmias come and go, they don't last very long, just like you might feel your heart race for a few minutes one day, and then won't feel it again for another week. So sometimes when you get to the ER or tell your doc, you're fine, and you maybe do an EKG, it looks normal. So it's hard to capture. And so finally, when people have been going around and around, probably having this symptom for a long period of time until it escalates, and they finally go to the emergency room or the primary care doctor. But those settings aren't really equipped to then send them out with something to capture an arrhythmia. So they're referred and someone's fall out. So there's huge waste of time and more importantly, waste of cost up front. So one of the key things was how can you develop something that can be placed at the point of care to move monitoring where the patient is versus making the patients to go where the monitor is to start the process. So that was one big insight because one of the strange things in this particular aspect of medicine is that, you know, no, no, primary care doctor would refer to a cardiologist to take a blood pressure and then determine if it's high, I'll manage it. And if it's low, send them back. But that's essentially what happens with arrhythmia diagnosis. Uh, a primary care doctor emergency room would say like, I don't know if you need a cardiologist, but maybe you should go see them. And then they might order a test and find that it was negative and send you back. So it's kind of an inefficient use of how can we get a test First, to determine whether you need to see a specialist and then if you need to see a specialist, it's a much more efficient use of healthcare and specialist utilization. So that was one insight and so the basic premise of the concept was also, if you needed to do this, a lot of people who have arrhythmias are elderly, they have comorbidities, um, you know, span a wide range of things. There are also young people who exercise and do other things. There are people who want to keep it discreet. Nobody wants anyone else to know that they might have a heart problem. So how do you make something that's essentially like a single-use product that can be deployed in any particular care setting to a wide range of patients that's easy and simple to use? That's what really generated the idea of a 14-day patch. A 14 days is because typically if you're presenting with symptoms that could be due to something like this, you'll be able to pick it up within the first two weeks. But that was only part of the problem, right? And this is, again, I think one of the insights that's made iRhythm successful was, it's not just the shiny thing. The shiny thing collects data, but data is then becomes information that has to be actionable that then enters workflow so a lot of companies don 't think about what all of the other aspects of it because workflow means service data means algorithms and IT and reporting so one of the things I think I spent a lot of time thinking about once I decided after by design to license the technology and start this company in my apartment was we have this idea for a patch, but that's not going to be enough, clearly, because there was really no way to go through all of the heartbeats captured by this product over 14 days in an efficient, scalable manner. If you really wanted to change the entire paradigm and have these devices deployable in any primary care office, neurologist's office, emergency room, cardiologist's office, you can't just try to scale up the way Holter monitors were read, which is basically a person using a PC to go through all of the data quickly. Even with 24 hours of data, that still takes like half an hour, 45 minutes, forget about 14 days. So algorithms and data.
1: I, well, I remember early on uh, a uh, when I early saw the device um, that somebody told me that it wasn't that the device was so exciting. It was that the fact that you got a fast, accurate report delivered to the doctor to save them time is what made them want to use it.
0: Yeah. No, I think that was the, so patients really only care about one thing. I want an answer, right? I need to figure out what's going on uh, because I'm telling you, doctor, I'm having these symptoms or, and so that's their interest. Physicians have a very different interest. Physicians want to know what is going on, but without a lot of work right because they're doing so many different things and taking care of so many different patients so we spent a lot of time thinking about all right if we collect all this data how can we process it how can we put it into a form that any level of physician emergency room physician, primary care, cardiologist, electrophysiologist can glean the information they need without ordering a second or third test that they prefer. And so we spend a lot of time on the information design of the report. So the front page is really simple and easy for someone who's not a specialist to understand, do I, oh, they look like there's an arrhythmia here, I can't tell you exactly what to do with it or how serious or not serious, but there's something here you should see a specialist. Then the specialist, like the cardiologist, might say, yep, you have a lot of these, You should see my buddy, the electrophysiologist, and the electrophysiologist can look down even at a deeper level on the same report to understand, oh, how did this arrhythmia start? How did it end? Because those are the clues we get into how we might treat it. But again, from the healthcare standpoint, we saw a lot of double, triple ordering of tests um, with the traditional devices because each device was not geared to provide all the information the different stakeholders along the value chain would need such that that just added cost. And again, for the patient, frustrating more and more tests and more and more time without getting to a definitive, actionable answer.
2: So two questions. Yep. Um, One is uh, Zach Kahaney actually always talks about this concept of the incidental home. Yep. You know, that as there are more devices, you measure more things. Of course. You uncover more things. I'm curious about your experience with that, Harry. Did you find it that there's just like more stuff out there that uh, you know, people were sort of aware of? And then, separate question, to then go into the sort of the key challenge that Lisa raised earlier about the economics of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in terms of incentive in incidentaloma, so I think one piece I, you know we didn't touch on that's important that gets to that question is that, like I said, we have the device which collects data in a very easy and can be deployed. We have the report which the physicians get, but the intervening part is very important. So once we get the device and get the data. We process it on the cloud. We were using Amazon Web Services very, very early on as kind of a place to do scalable cloud-based processing with a very proprietary algorithm we developed to go through all of this data very carefully. But at the end of it, a human double-checks a little bit of that work and pulls out additional things for the physician. So how do we prevent incidental illness? Well, we try to make sure that the report we present to the physician is as accurate as possible in terms of the rhythms that do exist and then also provide additional support for those if there's more more tracings that are perhaps of interest etc so that it can help the physician make a decision ultimately the physician has to tie what they're seeing to the patient's symptoms you know one of the other pieces that's important along these lines to, to distinguish between incidentalomas and real is a device has an integrated button so when you feel something you just press it it's recording everything but it makes a mark exactly at that moment in time So again, from a symptom standpoint or whatever, it helps the physician understand like, oh, okay, you have this rhythm when you press the button, when you said you're feeling that symptom, this is probably real.
2: Because my guess is that you find a lot more arrhythmias or, or stuff than people were aware of.
0: Oh, yeah. We find a lot. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's important is that remember, we're a clinical prescribed product, meaning that. You only get our product if a physician has prescribed it to you, which means that they have a reason to suspect that you might have something because of something you're telling them, meaning I'm having these symptoms or I've had a history of this arrhythmia that has been ablated, now I want to see. So the idea of incident goes down versus kind of consumer wearables or other types of monitors which is a lower pretest probability patient group right the lower and lower the pretest the more false positives you have the higher it goes the more those positives are actually true positives and so our goal is to provide make provide all of an accurate assessment of everything that's there in terms of frequency number characterization so that in this group that you suspected something you can understand that these findings probably are not incidental, uh, but they may be real. And so, I think the idea of incidentaloma is true. You no, know, don't go looking for trouble if it doesn't exist. Um, but in the case of these patients, you know, we do find other findings. Like sometimes you'll find a short, two-beat run of non-sustained VT, but that doesn't mean anything necessarily. Most physicians will understand that. But if we have, yeah thousands and thousands of two-beat runs, that's actually a different finding. <laughs> yeah, That probably does mean something. Right.
1: Well, let me ask you something, though. Yeah. When you were starting this company, I think it was 2008, maybe? Yes. Is that when you started Seven's
0: it? when it's first funding, yeah. That
1: was really early yep. before there was this term, digital health, right? Oh, yeah, there
0: was no such thing,
1: yep. <laughs> and you, I mean, your product may well have been the first such thing, the first, you know, real medical wearable. Mm-hmm. Um, did you... Do you feel that, that the whole 2010, 2011 onslaught of that concept of digital health propelled the company, or did it confuse people because you've been living in the medical device world? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, which is, you know, at that point totally separate. It's a
0: good question. And we'll come back to this and the economic question you asked, at least the U.S. as a second part. So I don't think uh, when I started the company, we were, uh, it was, I was thinking about how to label it or not label it. It was the right solution an IT company enabled by a device supported by a service to solve this problem. Who cares what you want to call it? (laughs) It's a medically prescribed problem for this group of people. What was interesting was that after the iPhone came out in 2007 and all of the other stuff that was happening, there was this kind of separate wave of the exact opposite thing of what we teach at biodesign. At biodesign, we really focus on understanding and characterizing a need and all of the elements that you need to solve it and then you go to the toolbox of all the solutions that exist or don't exist and you know invent new things or use things that have already been created or apply them. Digital health reflected to me kind of the opposite, meaning I have a phone, I have you know, Bluetooth, I have these capabilities, what can I do with them? What health problem is best solved with them? And I think the challenge for us was that created a lot of noise. And not even a challenge, it's more like, we actually, I think, as a company uh, back then, were very quiet about what we did. We were kind of in the, you know, we just kind of plotted along, doing what we needed to do to prove the value of what we always knew was the true value of the product and the service uh, and our report. Um, and so there was a lot of other companies that were, had a lot of hype, because this was a lot more of the, it seemed to me at that time, a lot of the tech folk. Uh, tech folks versus medical folks coming into healthcare saying like we probably might be able to do this a little better, which I think is always great, right? Having an outside opinion and an outside view of things is always refreshing and important. But I think what's happened over the last five or 10 years is that there's been an understanding that perhaps a melding of good understanding of medical problems from some people who've maybe been in there with a marriage of people who bring new technologies from the tool th- that supply the toolbox of how to solve these problems probably is a better way to go than saying, we know how to solve the problem and we have the tools or from the medical side, we know the problems and we know the best way to solve them it's somewhere in between. So I don't know if it really helped or hurt us. It, it just, kind of was there, and what was interesting is we'd see companies go and come and a lot of hype and less hype, and sometimes it was frustrating. Like, here we are as a company actually helping hundreds of thousands of people, (laughs) and we have a lot less press than everybody else. But, you know, ultimately, we're not there for PR. We're there to build a product that helps people, Um, and that's what we've done. And so that gets to the economic question, too, so maybe I'll touch on that. Um, I think we also learned early on that building a company – today, particularly in a value-conscious environment where you have to develop solutions, again, which take into account services, devices, and IT, especially in these ambulatory models, is hard work, and hard work not from engineering, not from data, hard work from just understanding workflow and payment. So I think early on we understood that it was going to be a long fight to get to where we needed to get to, but a worthwhile one because I think everyone understood that the solution we had made a lot of sense and could have, you know, could really reflect the promise of reducing cost. So a lot of the last few years have been you know, proving through peer-reviewed publications, through studies, through real-world usage, you know, papers showing 20,000, 30,000 of our devices. What are they finding? When are they finding it? Why is this better? Is it leading to people to – you know, one of the earliest papers we did was we had patients wear both a Holter and a Zeo patch and show that the doctors with the additional information from Azio actually made a different decision that altered the course of that patient's outcome in a good way. And that's what's really important, right? Diagnostics have the the challenge above and beyond therapeutics in the sense that they have to create information that then leads to action that a therapeutic or some other thing has to happen, whereas the therapeutics are much easier. It's a, you know, it does what it has to do or not.
2: Totally the perspective of a diagnostics guy, by the way. Um, but, uh, but, but, but that's okay. We'll, we'll let you have that one. Uh, the folks who are doing therapeutics, I'm not sure they've... Oh, yeah, they've, well,
0: I'm doing therapeutics. I'm not therapy now, so I know too. But, but, I, but I do think that economics is... That, that's where the economics came in, right? The economics came in, like, understanding what payers needed to see and us basically raising funds not for glamorous PR or anything like that, but really just to fund studies, fund continued usage to get to the point where payers were now convinced and started not only giving us co- – we got in and then uh, coverage and now
2: contract. Right. So, um, I mean, basically you developed it like as if it was – what it is, a medical device, and you went the medical device route, yep. and it just happens to be a medical device that's particularly user-friendly. Well,
0: yeah, yeah, it's a medical device that you don't feel is a medical device. <laughs>
2: exactly. So we're almost out of time, but so what I want to do is yep. I want—I don't want to not mention your current company, Element Science. Sure. So I would love for you to share a – the, here's the professional version, your 30-second elevator pitch or whatever is equivalent to um, – Uh, you know, just sort of in a really briefly what element science does, just so our listeners have a chance to at least take that away from the podcast.
0: Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, after iRhythm, you know, I have a lot of experience in this area. And and one of the patents I filed actually prior to iRhythm was the idea of uh, basically understanding the need of, if you have a heart attack or if you're diagnosed with heart failure, how are you protected from dying suddenly in the first 40 to 90 days after that event when your heart is healing because you're on new medications, you've got a stent. essentially, how do you bridge this period from the hospital to the home until you've got back to a stable chronic state in which you may need an implantable defibrillator or you may not because you've gotten better.
2: Yeah, where the literature suggests your risk of death is dramatically elevated.
0: Yes, in this time period. So, we really, you know, there, it wasn't really commonplace when I filed this patent what people would do. So, the, the basic premise of the patent was taking an AED, you know, on walls and hospitals and casinos, automatic and defibrillator, airports, and putting it into a Zoll pad, which is essentially a defibrillator pad. So, basically, it's kind of your own wearable defibrillator that's stuck to your body. And again, this was a patent from 2006 or 2007 that I filed and so anyways, uh, a bigger project and so as it came due when I started thinking about the idea it seemed that this is becoming a more and more important need people are recognizing it and so the current company is basically pursuing building that product uh, a clinical closed-loop wearable therapeutic Um, so kind of moving to the next realm of medical clinical wearables but at the therapeutic level a a pure class 3 PMA product Um, again purely medical. So some people always ask me, hey, you seem to have done well in iRhythm. Why would you want to go to a class three PMA? And I said, you know, the thing about medical devices, unlike the consumer world, is that you know what problems you have to solve. You know what hurdles you have to overcome. So it brings a lot of clarity, doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's cheap, doesn't mean it's short term. It's a long, long haul, but it's very clear what you have to do And at the end of that, if you're able to get there. Is very rewarding.
2: Wow. Well, uh, that that's fantastic. Really, really interesting stuff. I hope you're incredibly successful developing it, and I <laughs> I hope I don't know anyone who ever has to uh, require it, but I'm glad it'll be there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank
0: you very much. Very interesting. No, thanks, Lisa. Thanks, David. It was great. Look forward to seeing you guys around.
2: Uday Kumar is a cardiologist and serial entrepreneur, the founder of iRhythm and of Element Sciences.
1: Yeah, I really uh, enjoy talking to him. I always find that interesting, the confluence of devices and digital that is now becoming quite prevalent. But I think, you know, 10 years ago, nobody thought about at all, you know, and uh, those two worlds live so separately. But he managed to figure out the confluence, the convergence, before anybody called it something.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is it's basically... Their own marketing material just describes it as a digital health device. It's, it's a medical device. I mean, it's a medical device, you know, that I think fits continuously in the evolution of medical devices. And as you pointed out, it was developed, you know, before this sort of this digital health wave. And then while it's sort of been labeled almost as part of it, maybe to make it more consumer friendly, it's basically developed and marketed. It's a hardcore medical device. And, uh, you know, you wonder if that's more of a mindset that some folks should think of in the context of this versus, you know, I mean, it's very rigorous. I just think the
1: whole concept of digital health as a term is wrong. I mean, all it really is, is the convergence of technology that's IT based with devices or drugs or services, period. All right, there you've heard it. Let it be said, let it
2: be done. Um, <laughs> please remember to um, Let us know what you think of uh, Lisa's uh, view of digital health And everything else Remember to rate us on iTunes Leave a review, tell us what you think Tell your friends, it really makes a difference You can follow David's writing at Forbes And you can follow the always judgmental Lisa's, <laughs> Lisa Sunin At VentureValkyrie.com As well as on the Timmerman Report
1: I have nothing to apologize for And we are also grateful to our sponsor DNA Nexus the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is
2: produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio A in scenic Hillsboro, California.
1: Podcasting from the heart.